Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as also did his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet an hour is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, What do you want? Or, Why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. 
I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Well, good morning, Grace Church. I don't know how you do with, uh, you know, springing forward, but I'm more of a fallback kind of person, so we're going to have to make sure we're awake here, right? All right. Well, thanks for being here. It's wonderful to be able to gather together and worship uh, our Lord and Savior today. Uh, that, that's an amazing story we just heard, isn't it? It's an amazing story, but it's probably also a familiar story. If you've been in church at all, well, you've probably heard this story so many times, and you've likely heard many, many messages on this exact thing. But I want to just take a moment and ask, is it possible that in all the times that we've spent either reading this, hearing this, or, or, or learning uh, about this, that, that we may have actually missed something along the way, that we may have even drawn some conclusions that might turn out to be, well, at least speculative at best, And have we maybe put ourselves in a position where we've limited the greatness of what this scripture truly reveals to us? And so we're going to look at this over the next two weeks. So the first, this week, we're going to look at verses uh, 1 to 26 in John chapter 4. And then next week, we're going to finish it off with 27 through 42. So we have to split it in two because we want to make sure that we see the truth and the depth of what's really going on here and what we can learn from this. Because if you've heard the kind of the common boilerplate message on this, uh, it, it goes usually something like this. Jesus goes to Samaria where he meets this woman at Jacob's well. And of course, this woman has made a lot of bad choices in her life. And she's probably a prostitute or an adulterer uh, because, you know, she can't seem to, to keep a husband. So we don't really know that all that, but we know that she's up to no good. She's got a very shady history. She meets Jesus during her daily walk of shame to go fetch water. Uh, and it, she's doing it when nobody else is around because, you know, she can't possibly be with anybody else, Jesus offers her living water uh, by calling her out on her sin and condemning her and demanding that she repent. And then she sees the error of her ways and she has this living water. But what if, what if that's not the whole story? What if we need to see deeper into this? And what if some of our conclusions some of the assumptions that we've made are really not based on what the Bible is actually saying, but they're more based on what we are saying about this woman. The assumptions that we're making about this person and her situation. Now, I don't know about you, but have people in your life made assumptions and they think that they know things about you that they don't? but they put together a narrative and start treating you as if it were the case that they know the truth about you. I think this happens all the time. 
And so when we approach this story in John chapter 4, we're tempted to do exactly the same thing. We're tempted to read into this our assumptions and our speculations. And so today, I just want to take the time to ask God to come into our lives and illuminate us in such a way that we see the truth about who he is in maybe a way that we haven't seen before. But we know that that's not possible for us to just want and then do ourselves, but we actually need God to do this for us. So let's pray as we we ask God to reveal the truth to us this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us together. We thank you that you continue to knit us together as your body. And Lord, now in these moments that we have together, may it not at all be about my words, but may it be only about your word, that your word does exactly what it says in this place, that it frees captives, that it brings the dead to life. Lord, we surrender this time to you. We ask that that you illuminate our hearts with your Holy Spirit, that you fill us up with your grace and with your truth. We thank you and we praise you for who you are and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you have your Bible, uh, John chapter 4, it's John chapter 4 as we continue in our foundation series where we're walking through uh, the gospel of John together. And so I know we just we heard the, the reading on the video, but I just want to read these first six verses again so we kind of have a good place of where we're starting and, and a little bit of a picture of where we're going. All right, starting in verse 1. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Now, do you see how this, if you were here last week, we talked all about in John chapter 3, John the Baptist, or John the Witness, as we called him. Do you see how this connects back to where we left off last week. Because the reality of it is that, remember, John was popular. He was out baptizing people for for repentance. People would confess their sins. They would get baptized in the Jordan River. And that was going on, and he was wildly popular. And then we talked about last week, all of a sudden, Jesus shows up on the scene with his disciples. They're on the other side of the river. And it says, well, everybody was going to Jesus. Everybody was going to Jesus. We talked about how maybe you and I might be tempted to view that as, well, there's competition. It's competition. What, what did John think about this? Because John's disciples were like, well, what are we going to do about this? You know, we're, we're, we, we got to get the people back over here. And John says, no, you don't understand. This is what's supposed to happen. And John was happy that the people were going to Jesus. Happy. Because that meant that his work was completed. He had done the good work of preparing the way for the Lord who then showed up. So, of course, John doesn't see Jesus as competition. There's not a competition. John sees Jesus as the completion of his work, the fulfillment of what he had been working toward. And so, I wish we could say that all people didn't view Jesus as the competition, but naturally, what happens when, uh, let's say, even a church starts really booming and the whole, everybody's going to that particular church? What happens then? Well, we start 
to wonder, well, what's going on over there? This is the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time. They were supposed to be in charge of the church services. They were supposed to be the ones who had the, the say about all these religious activities. And so for Jesus to then all of a sudden be even more popular than John, well, that, of course, got the Pharisees' attention. They want to know, like, well, wait a minute. What's happening? How we're losing control of the situation. So they wanted to find out. And so the, the text tells us that Jesus left Judea and headed back to Galilee. But here's the important part I want you to know. He did not leave because he was afraid. He did not leave because he was somehow threatened by the Pharisees. That's not what's happening here. He left because the time for the conflict with the Pharisees had not come yet. It had not come yet. It wasn't time for that. And so he left to avoid that confrontation. Remember, when we talked about uh, the wedding at Cana in John chapter 2, we talked all about how uh, Jesus turned the water into wine, yes. But remember how his mother asked him to get involved? Hey, they're out of wine. And Jesus, what does he say to her? Woman, why do you involve me in this? My hour has not yet come. And we talked about what does that specifically mean? Because Jesus uses this phrase, my hour has not yet come, over and over and over again. And we talked about how that specifically refers, refers to the time when Jesus will be arrested, beaten, tortured, crucified on a Roman cross, put in a tomb, and then was raised again three days later. This, this hour had not yet come. And so in this particular case, the confrontation that would lead to all of that, it wasn't time for that. And so Jesus left and went toward Galilee. But interestingly enough, he had a very strange travel route. And we'll talk about why that is. But, but take a look at uh, chapter 4, verse 4. It says, now he had to go through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria. Now, this might not sound like a very strange uh, thing, but it is, I assure you, because of this three-letter word, he had to go to Samaria. We shouldn't understand this uh, to be that he was forced to go there. But what does it mean he, he had to go there? And why do we care? Well, for starts, because Jewish people did not go through Samaria to get anywhere. Matter of fact, they didn't even want their feet to touch the soil of Samaria. Now, I don't know if you, if you remember this, but the original kingdom was all 12 tribes of Israel in this territory. But then the kingdom was split into two. And we had David and his kingdom in the south. And then we had the northern 10 tribes of Israel. They had this kingdom in the north. So the northern 10 tribes, it was referred to as Israel. And then the southern two tribes, which were Benjamin and Judah. Benjamin kind of got swallowed up into Judah. The southern kingdom is called Judah. The northern kingdom was called Israel. But then... Because of the northern kingdom's continued uh, ignoring of God's will and God's ways, they, the, the sin was great. God allowed the Assyrian Empire, who was north, to come down and conquer and wipe out the twelve or the ten tribes of Israel, the ten tribes that were in the northern kingdom. They, they were wiped off the face of the earth in terms of we never heard from them the same way again because they got mixed in with all of the Assyrians. As 
the Jewish people that were in Israel got exported to Assyria, the Assyrians moved into that territory and they started intermarrying and, and intermixing with one another. And, and what this did was it, it created this divide between the Jewish people in the south and the Samaritans, because that was what they renamed the area to Samaria. The Jewish people wanted nothing to do with Samaritans because they viewed them as half-breeds, unclean, impure. They didn't want anything to do with them at all. And so most, if not almost all, Jewish travelers would never go through Samaria, even though it was shorter, even though it, it took less effort. They wouldn't go that way. They would instead go all the way over across the Jordan River on the other side. It would be more dangerous. It would be longer to get where you were going, but they would do that just to avoid being anywhere near Samaritans. So for this text to say that Jesus had to go through Samaria is a very interesting word indeed. Why did he have to go there? Well, like I said, it, it's not that we should understand it, that he's been forced to go there. I want you to hear this. He's going there because he had an appointment. He had an appointment. He was on his way to a divinely orchestrated, barrier-breaking, faith-making encounter with this woman who he culturally and traditionally should have never even been in the presence of. He should have never been with her. Certainly, he should never have been talking to her. But those are all human constructs. Those are all human barriers. Those are all things that we have, and we still have them today, where we build walls and divide people and separate and, and all of these kinds of things. But here's the deal. Jesus is not bound by our barriers. Jesus is not bound by our barriers. He is the boundary breaker. Every time you try to corner him, he will not be cornered. Every time we try to box him up, he will not be put in that box. He continues to break down barriers between people because Jesus is determined to get to you. He's determined to get to you. And he's determined to get to me. And this goes for everybody. It goes for everybody. Remember, John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world. Not, well, God loved some of these people and some of those people and the people that look like this and the people that do that and the people that think this way, people that vote that way. No, that's not what happened. God so loved the world. What did he do? He proved that love to us by sending what was most precious to him, his beloved son. He came for us to rescue us. And for all who believe and trust in him, that's exactly what he does. He's proven his love for us by sending his beloved son. And that is true for everybody. And when we remember that, when we remember how determined and committed Jesus is to getting to us, no matter our circumstances, well, then in that light, maybe it's not all that surprising that he's going to Samaria after all. Maybe this makes a little bit more sense. Maybe he had to go there to show us something about himself, to reveal something that is deeply true about him and what he came to do. And so he's on a mission, and now it's taking quite a while. I don't know about you. I can't say as though I've ever even come close to somebody out in the lobby after the first service said to me, um, 
that they're walking three miles a day. And I had to think, I wonder how much time duration I would have to go through to say that I've walked three miles. But the reality of it is walking for three or four days, anybody's going to be tired. We're going to be tired, right? And so Jesus has been walking for three or four days and he's tired and he's thirsty. Now, we probably don't spend a lot of time thinking about Jesus being tired and thirsty, right? But Jesus is the word made flesh. Jesus is God himself who took on flesh and came to live amongst his people. Jesus is not some sort of uh, Casper the ghost. Jesus has come in a human body. and Therefore, he is thirsty and he is tired. He is fully human. At the same time, he's fully God. And so sometimes we forget that, well, Jesus knows us and he knows what it's like to be us because he became one of us. He knows us and what it's like to be us because he became one of us. And so he needs water, just like this Samaritan woman needs water, just like we need water. But even deeper than that, he knows not just about our thirst. So he does know that we're thirsty. But he also knows much deeper what our pain is, what our struggles are, what our challenges are, our, our shortcomings. He knows us deeply. Then there's this interesting little detail here at the end of verse 6. Uh, it says, it was about noon. It was about noon. Now, again, that might just be, oh, an interesting detail. No, there's something special about this. I alluded to it earlier. But for this woman to be going to this well at noon was odd. Because women, they would gather in groups typically, and they would go to gather or draw water in the morning hours or in the evening hours. But they definitely wouldn't go during the middle of the day because it was hot and dry, and the sun was scorching, and all these kinds of things. And so for this woman to be at the well at noon, well, there's some significance there. It certainly is odd. And here's where we have to start to be careful. Because our automatic assumption here is, well, of course she's there at noon. Because she's an outcast. She's a sinner. She's a, uh, somebody that nobody wants to be around. She's, she's full of shame and she's impure and she's dirty and therefore nobody wants to be with this woman so she goes by herself at noon. And maybe, maybe that's true, but I want us to think about another reason that could be even more important for us. There's another reason. Remember, in chapter 3, we talked all about this encounter that Jesus had with a guy named Nicodemus. Remember Nicodemus? Nicodemus was very well-to-do, very wealthy, very powerful. He was a household name, so he was basically pretty famous. Uh, he was a member of the Jewish ruling council, uh, and he came, remember, to talk to Jesus under the cover of darkness. He came at night. He came at night, he talked to Jesus. Jesus tells him he must be born again to really find what he's looking for. And he doesn't, Nicodemus doesn't really quite ever get it. Doesn't really quite understand the truth about who Jesus is. He leaves kind of dismayed and confused. And this all happens in the dark. But then 
in chapter 4, we have a completely different situation. This story is full of contrasts. And so think about Nicodemus and what we just talked about with Nicodemus as we think about this woman at the well. There's a contrast between darkness and light. Nicodemus met in the dark. This woman is out there in the, not, not just during the daytime, but because it's at noon, that means it's the brightest and lightest part of the day. That should clue us into something here because what has John been telling us all throughout this gospel? It's all about coming out of the darkness and into the light. Coming out of the darkness and into the light, into the light of life who is Jesus. And so Nicodemus couldn't see it. It was dark. This woman, what will happen? What if we started focusing on that instead? What if we started focusing on Will she experience something different with Jesus? Because this is at the lightest, brightest part of the day, not in the cover of darkness like Nicodemus. Will she experience Jesus differently as a result? What if we ask that instead of, well, I wonder what's wrong with this woman. I wonder what she did. I wonder how she created this situation for herself. No. What if we just said, we don't really know why she's there at noon, but that it could be because she's about to encounter Jesus in a way that Nicodemus never did. So when we think about these contrasts, these differences between chapter three and chapter four, in chapter three, we had this powerful religious Jewish man with a name, Nicodemus, who met Jesus at night. And then in chapter four, we've got this unknown, unnamed Samaritan woman who meets Jesus during the brightest part of the day. We're supposed to see the difference between these two things. And the first thing that tells us is that Jesus is surprising and unexpected. He doesn't follow our barriers. He doesn't abide by our boundaries and the walls that we have set up. He just transcends those things. Matter of fact, in just this one interaction with this woman, he transcends racial, cultural, social, traditional, religious, gender, political, and even moral barriers. He is Mr. Boundary Breaker himself. He will not be defined by our definitions. He will not be cornered into what we think he should be doing. He breaks the barriers. Look at uh, verse 9. This woman is even startled by this because, first of all, she probably expected to be at the well all by herself. Well, here's Jesus. And she knows, well, this is really strange. And so she just says, hey, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Because Jesus had said, hey, I'm thirsty. Can you give me something to drink? So th this is already strange because of the timing. Now we have another strange element because there's a man and a woman. And then beyond that, we have this difference between what does it mean to be Jewish and what does it mean to be a Samaritan? So he's, he's just, boom, breaking barriers left and right here. But the reason that these people hated one another, the Jewish people and the Samaritans. Like I mentioned, the Jewish people looked down on the Samaritans as if they were half-breeds, impure, unclean, all this, to the point where these two groups of people, it had gotten bad enough that they would actually pray 
to the same God, of course, they would pray for God not to hear the other people's prayers. And it's got to be pretty bad to get to that level, right? I mean, when you're praying for, some, for God not to hear somebody's prayers, uh, that's pretty tough. But this, this animosity was to the point where the Jews, in, a, in an attempt to avoid even the possibility of becoming unclean or defiled, they wouldn't even use the dishes or the cups that had been touched by Samaritans for fear that they would somehow be unclean. Just the remnants of any kind of saliva would dirty them. And so they avoided even using the dishes. But, you know, we might sit here today and think that's just so hard for us to imagine. But is it really? Is it really hard for us to imagine? Because it was less than 60 years ago that several states in this country had two different water fountains based on the color of people's skin for exactly the same reasons. This is heartbreaking when you consider how far we've come over 2,000 years and still how far we have to go. And Jesus is giving us a big clue onto how we should understand what it means to solve these problems. Yes, we can fight for new rules and we can fight for new laws and, and that all can help to a degree, but Jesus is giving us something here that we have to understand before we do any of that or it will be destined to fail. Here's the deal. His, he is teaching us that when it comes to this kind of living water, what, with what he's offering to this woman, that kind of water, the, the only kind that springs up, springs forth, springs forward into eternal life, that kind of water only has one fountain. It only has one fountain. And anyone and everyone is invited to drink from it. There is only one fountain that springs forth eternal life for all who believe. That is the determining factor. Not some characteristic about you. Not the way that the world tries to separate and divide us all from one another. That's not what determines whether or not we can drink from this fountain of living water. It's simply, do we believe and do we trust in Jesus? And if we do, then we are all brought together around this one well of living water. Boom! More barriers are broken. Because no matter who you are, and no matter what you look like, no matter what you, where you've come from, what you've done, what you've left undone, no matter your struggles, your challenges, your pain, your shortcomings, whatever it is, None of that disqualifies you or somehow puts you out of the reach of this Jesus who is determined to get to you. He's coming for you. And so today I want you to hear this. Jesus has kept his appointment with you. He met this woman because he had a divine appointment. And guess what? Today, right now, in this place, he's kept his appointment with you. Will you drink from this well of salvation? Will you drink from this living water that only he offers? Because all of us are thirsty. 
all of us are thirsty for something and all of us are thirsting after something. But anything, anything that the world can use to attempt to satisfy us will all fail. Our thirst will continue. We will never be satisfied until we drink this living water who is Jesus. What are you thirsting for in your life today? Is it Jesus or is it anything or anyone else? All right, this contrast continues into verse 15. Take a look at verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Now that is an amazing thing. Uh, I, I don't know. Okay, so remember, under the cover of darkness, Nicodemus is unsure. He's confused. He doesn't know. He doesn't know where to go from there. Jesus is telling him he's got to be born again. He's scratching his head going, I don't even really understand that. But here... Jesus offers living water to this woman. And what does the woman say? I want it. Give it to me. Now, at this point, as a preacher, I, I would love for the confetti cannons to shoot off. I, I would love for the band to strike up here. And I would love for the celebration to begin. Because isn't that what we want when we share our faith, when we talk to somebody about Jesus, when we tell them the good news that we've experienced and we, we try to bring other people into that? Don't we want them to say, give me some of that. I want that. But party time is not yet for Jesus here. He has a, an interesting response to her saying, give me this water. Look at uh, verse 16. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is that you've had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. And of course, here's another point in this story where we get our bony little finger out, and we start pointing at this woman, and we start saying, oh my gosh, what a mess she is. She's, look at the, the outcast that she is. She, she's probably, uh, you know, we can say it all, all different kinds of ways. Many Bible commentators have, have even called her a five-time loser. How unfair can we possibly be? We have no idea why this woman has had five husbands. Nowhere in this text does it actually tell us what is going on here. Did you know that if you were a woman at that particular time in that part of the world and you were an adult woman unattached to a man, it was almost a death? sentence? You could not do anything. The only job a woman could have who was not attached to a man was to beg for someone to give her what she needed to survive. And so maybe we shouldn't be quite so quick to think we've got it all figured out. Oh, look at all these divorces. Maybe she's an adulterer. Maybe she's a prostitute. Maybe she just, she doesn't know how to keep a man. Or maybe we should understand that what is really happening here is that Jesus doesn't, doesn't call her out on all these sins. He doesn't condemn her. Matter of fact, sin is never even mentioned in this passage once. What if instead we just recognize that what Jesus does is he sees her. He sees her for the truth of her situation and what she's been through. Whether or not this divorce pattern is her problem, or whether it's been done to her, the reality of it is, if any of us had been married five times, we would have lots of baggage, lots of pain, lots of brokenness, lots, lots of shame and feeling unworthy. 
And Jesus sees her in that, in her circumstances, and understands the truth about how much that she is loved by God, regardless of her pain and her struggles and her challenges and even her shortcomings. And so Jesus wants to talk about this because he wants all of her. He wants her whole life. He wants our whole life. We have to ask, I think, are we trying to hold anything back? Are we trying to protect something and you know, section something off that we hope nobody's ever going to know? And we think we can hide it well enough that, that God doesn't even know. But guess what? God sees us. God sees us for who we are. And he comes to rescue us. He doesn't run from us. He rescues us. He's not afraid of our burdens. He's not afraid of our circumstances. He's not afraid of the things that we feel make us unworthy or unacceptable. But he doesn't want us to try to hold it back from him either. He doesn't want us to try to change the subject, which is what this woman gets regularly accused of in this story. Uh, Because if you take a look, she says in verse 19, Sir, I can see that you are a prophet, but then right after that, she says, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. But here's the thing. I don't think she's trying to change the subject. Some people will say, look, she's trying to avoid talking about the husbands. She's trying to avoid, uh, you know, she's trying to hide her situation from Jesus. Well, guess what? We just got done saying that you cannot hide anything from Jesus. So if Jesus wanted to talk to her more about that, he would have. But what does he do instead? He answers the question. He answers the question. Take a look at what he says in verse 21. He says, a time is coming where you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Just stop there for a second. That is an amazing answer because the root of this argument between the Jewish people and the Samaritans, like we said earlier, was all related to religious disagreements. Each one of these groups thought that they had it figured out. And so what if instead of this woman just trying to change the subject to avoid talking about the truth, what if instead she's asking, how do I worship? What if she's asking, where do I worship? How do I make sure I'm worshiping the right way? Because she just got done in verse 19 confessing that Jesus is a prophet. He's a prophet. So if he is a prophet and she sees him as a prophet and her eyes have been opened by the spirit to recognize that there's something unique, special, and different about Jesus then maybe what she's doing is saying, well, maybe this guy can actually answer my question. Who's got it figured out? Are we doing it right by worshiping on this mountain? Should we be worshiping in Jerusalem? She's convicted about what is the way to worship. But Jesus, in verse 21, like I just read, tells her an unexpected truth. First, he basically says, there's a time coming where neither one is going to matter. But also at the same time, he does tell her for right now, for right now, the place is in Jerusalem because salvation comes from the Jews. 
Now, Jesus himself is Jewish, right? And we know that salvation is in him. So naturally, the conclusion is, well, salvation does, in fact, come from the Jews. But then he goes on and he says, but don't get too comfortable with that. Because time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. In other words, he's telling her that the correct place to worship is not something that she should be really concerned about at that particular point. What she should be concerned about is this relationship with him, this drinking from the living water that he's offering her because the ultimate answer is not found in a temple in Jerusalem, nor is the ultimate answer found on a mountain in Samaria. The ultimate answer is only found in the person of Jesus, period, the end. He's the promised Messiah. He's the Savior. And to be the kind of worshipers that God really seeks, that God really wants, we have to realize that true worship is not location dependent. It's Jesus dependent. It's Jesus dependent. And so what that means for us is when, when we believe and trust Jesus and when we are filled by God's Holy Spirit who leads and guides us in the way that we live in the world, if we are truly following him and we are truly seeking God's will, then everything that we're doing in our lives should be worship. It's not confined to a particular location or even a time frame or anything like that. It's all of us. Again, Jesus wants all of us. And if he makes all of us new and raises us to new life and gives us the power of the spirit, then by the spirit, we live differently. We love others as Jesus loved us. That's what we do. That's how we worship in spirit and in truth. Those are the kind of worshipers that the Father is seeking. Now, both groups of people, the Samaritans and also the Jewish people, both of them were expecting a Messiah to show up. They both were expecting a Messiah. They just didn't have the same expectations about this Messiah. Because the people in the south, the southern kingdom, Judah, they were expecting the Messiah to be who the prophets had promised. That the, that the Messiah would come as a continuation of the line of King David. And so the prophets had written about this, had spoken about this. That's who they were expecting. A, a king, a conquering king, who would come and just obliterate all of their enemies. And then you have in the north, the northern kingdom, you've got this, uh, this expectation that the Messiah, it, it, well, that can't possibly be true about all this King David thing, because remember, they didn't have King David. They had their own king in Assyria, or uh, their own king in Israel until Assyria took over. And so they're thinking, well, the Messiah is coming, and he's going to be somebody like Moses. He's going to be somebody like Moses who's going to give us a new version of the law so that then we can know how to complete this relationship with God. But guess what? The only way to complete that relationship with the Father is through the Son, the fountain 
of living water, the one fountain, the one place where all are invited to come and drink from this living water. But Jesus settles the mystery over this Messiah business. In verse 26, he says one of the most amazing things that you will ever hear him say in the Bible. You ready? I, the one speaking to you, I am. Now your translation might say, I am he. I know this is going to sound crazy, but you should cross that he out in your Bible. There is no he in the original manuscripts. He is saying, I am, because remember, that phrase, I am, is not a phrase. It's a name. It's the name that God gave to Moses, the special name that we translate it. It could be, nobody really knows for sure, but it's, I will be who I will be or something, something along those lines. But the point here is that by Jesus saying, the one you're speaking to, I am. That is a full disclosure from Jesus as to exactly who he is. He is the Messiah. But even more than that, more than that, he is God in the flesh. He has come as this Messiah that no one expected in a way that nobody planned for. And the very first time he reveals his true identity in this way is to this most unexpected woman who we've so often pointed our fingers at and tried to imagine what must be wrong with her. But I got to tell you this truth today, folks. When it comes to this story, we are the woman. We are all the woman. We like to imagine ourselves as Jesus in this story, doing all these great things, evangelizing. No, we are this woman. We are broken people with challenges we cannot fix ourselves. And yet there is one who has come to us, Jesus, the Messiah, the the great I am, took on flesh to take our sins. And so he asks us, will you lay your burdens down? And will you come and taste and see that the Lord is good? Because when we do, then everything changes. If we started from understanding who Jesus is, allowing Jesus to come into our lives in such a way that there's no longer a question, we believe, we trust, we follow, then he will indeed live up to his promises. He is faithful and he is good and he will take us to wherever he's planned for us to go. If we will only follow him, cling to him, release our death grip on control of absolutely everything. We don't deserve this, but this is exactly what we heard in chapter one, this Grace upon grace. More than we could ever ask or seek. More than we can fathom. It's abundantly more than we could ever even understand. So I've got a few questions for you today. I want you to think about these and maybe don't be so quick to answer them. But during our time together, if the Lord has laid something on your heart, I want you to answer this first one. What are you holding back in your life hoping that God won't find? 
What are you holding back in your life? What, what is this secret that you are hoping no one ever finds out about, especially God? Because God wants that. He wants to take that burden from you. So my prayer for you is that you will lay your burdens at the foot of his cross because he's determined to keep this appointment with you and to do what he's come and promised to do, to take this from you. Give it to him. Just like he asked this woman, give me a drink. He's asking you right now for your burdens. Give him your burdens and drink this living water. The second question is what are you thirsting for other than living water? What are you thirsting for other than living water? Because all of us are thirsting after something. What do you need to surrender and give up to God today and say, you know what? The ways of the world can never satisfy my thirst. I want to come and drink from the living water. Maybe that's you today. The last question is, are you willing to worship God in the spirit and in truth? Are you willing to be the kind of worshipers that the Father is seeking? Because if we are, then we have to lean into that. We have to recognize that our boundaries and our barriers and our understanding, all of that, doesn't define who Jesus is, doesn't define what he's, what he's come to do, but instead might actually hinder us from experiencing the fullness of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what can we do as a community, as a church, what can we do to make sure that we are not building barriers, but instead, through the work of Jesus, we're tearing them down? Will you worship in spirit and in truth? by knowing and trusting and believing in who Jesus is and by going even where it gets uncomfortable and even in situations that we would prefer not to be in. If we do this as a community, we come together and we worship God in spirit and in truth, everything will change. Everything will change. He has promised that it will. And we trust in his promises. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you unite us instead of divide us. And you do that in your beloved son, the one who is most precious, the one whom you've chosen for our benefit to come to us to die for us, to rescue us, and to offer us this living water so that we might be raised to new life. Not for our benefit, but for the benefit of all those who you love so much. Lord, open our eyes and give us your heart. Give us your eyes to see. Make us your hands and feet and send us out into the world that you love so much to offer this living water. We thank you, Jesus, and we praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.